Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, 2014. Coming up, we talk with a scientist who has concerns about a sugar found not in sodas or candy, but red meat. And we have a counterpoint discussion with the founder of the paleo diet movement, Lauren Cordain, who recommends lots of meat, but says you might want to limit your grains and beans. We begin with a look back at some of our favorite science stories for 2014. And high on the list is our own Joel Parker, who is with our How on Earth team and also a leading astrophysicist with the Rosetta mission. Rosetta has made plenty of headlines by orbiting a comet and planting a lander on it. Joel is busy with the mission today, so Susan... What are some of the milestones Joel's given us about Rosetta? Well, as we know from many of the shows Joel's been on and all the coverage, so the drama began last January when Rosetta woke up from over two years in deep space hibernation. It woke up healthy and all systems working. And then in August, Rosetta rendezvoused with the comet dare I pronounce it wrong, Churyumov-Gerasimenko, but we can, call it, we can call it CG or Comet 67P. It was the first time a spacecraft has gone into orbit with a comet. And then last month, Rosetta sent the lander Philae to the surface of Comet 67P. Then another first, it was the first time a safe spacecraft has landed on the comet. The lander bounced a couple times, but it eventually settled and returned science data. The final landing spot actually didn't have enough light to recharge the batteries, but there is a possibility that the lighting will change with the seasons as the comet flies past the sun, so the lander could get enough light to charge the batteries and wake up sometime next year. Well, so Susan, so far, what has the science found about this comet? Well, so the average density of the comet is less than the density of ice. That's one thing. The type of water on the comet, and that's measured by the ratio of deuterium to regular hydrogen, doesn't match the type of water on the Earth. This means that the kind of comet, which is called a Jupiter family comet, probably is not the main source of water on the Earth. Well, what about for 2015? What do they think will happen with Rosetta? So it looks like the Rosetta spacecraft will continue to fly along with Comet 67P and watch as it gets more and more active, that's spewing gas and dust, as it flies by the sun. So the closest approach will be in August next year. Well, that's a lot of excitement about Rosetta, but there's other excitement that's been in the science news. What else is on your top list? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say exciting, but I guess it's probably undeniable that the biggest science story or science health story has been the Ebola outbreak. I mean, we first saw the first case, a two-year-old boy in the village village of Guinea died last December. I just checked the CAC, the um, Centers for Disease Control, last night, and I think the death count was 7,693 people in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea. Total cases over 19,000. But at least, I mean, there's no silver lining, I guess, but they are making progress towards a vaccine and hope to have something more definitive. Certainly they've been treating experimentally some of the doctors and healthcare workers. Let's hope that this year they get that vaccine. Yeah. And then I would say um, a big, big development on the climate science front, and it's not great news either, is that the Western Antarctic ice sheet, a huge, huge swath of like six glaciers, has melted so much that polar scientists predict, I actually say that it's already past the point of no return, meaning that 
they're in irreversible retreat. And already these glaciers account for about 10% of the recent increase in global sea level rise. So that doesn't bode too well. Another 10 feet of water in the ocean. Yeah. And then um, certainly interesting on the genetics front, I think the um, genome sequencing of the boy who died, let's say, 12,000 plus years ago and was buried in Montana, it proved that Native Americans are descended from an Asian population that migrated across what is now the Bering Strait, but back then was the land bridge known as Beringia. Well, we have just about 30 seconds for other top news before we go to an interesting idea for tomorrow. Yeah, I think one other one right here in Colorado is that our arid mountain west, um, this kind of a bittersweet story that last year the Colorado River met its natural terminus, its endpoint, the Sea of Cortez, for the first time in over 60 years. Well, that is poignant. We'd like it to meet the Sea of Cortez more often than that. Maybe, maybe the future will bode better for that Colorado River. Now, those have been some of the top science stories for 2014, but there's one more coming up. This Wednesday morning, that's tomorrow, here at KGNU. Susan, what is that? Right. So um, tomorrow morning at 8.35 to 9.30, I'll host a special call-in show, and that will be focusing on the recent climate talks in Lima, Peru. And my guests will be KGNU reporter Irene Rodriguez, who covered the talks. Also, Joel Smith of Stratus Consulting. He co-authored um, the chapters of the three assessments of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and then Jane Selvins of our local nonprofit organization, Clean Energy Action. So we'll discuss the implications of the climate agreement for global and, and on the global and national level. So you can call in, certainly listen, 835 to 930. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. When people eat a Western diet full of salt-filled bread, sugary snacks, and fried food, think vacation, many studies warn that those who also eat red meat have a higher risk of cancer than people who eat chicken or fish. Researchers have wondered whether red meat is more hazardous because it's higher in saturated fats, or iron, higher in iron, and so on. Now, scientists who study mice at the University of California, San Diego, have found another likely suspect, involving a form of sugar in red meat that isn't what you'd spoon on your cereal or drink in a cola. This sugar is a glycan called sialic acid. It's a very common building block our bodies use for making kneecaps, body cells, and body organs, such as the liver, and it needs to be just right. The sialic acid that comes from red meat differs from human sialic acid by just one oxygen molecule, and it easily slips from the digestive tract into the body's circulation. In mice, this can trigger inflammation that increases cancer. For more, here's lead researcher Ajit Virkchi talking about how his mouse studies are revealing a potential problem with a sialic acid in red meat. We narrowed it down to the single molecule that's found in red meat. So our mice are all getting the exact same diet. So literally the difference in diet between our mice is one oxygen atom, right, basically. Everything else is exactly the same. There's no red meat involved here. This is a molecule that is found in red meat, right? So what we've done is to make a mouse which has exactly the same deficiency, if you want to call it that, a missing molecule as humans. And we feed them either the human sialic acid or the non-human sialic acid. 
And then we cause antibody formation, just like in humans. So we have something like eight or ten control groups. And only in that one group of mice where you have both the foreign molecule going in and the antibodies being formed, in that combination, you get a five-fold increase in cancer. And in this case, in the mouse, it's in the liver where they tend to get cancer. This is the first time we can say that uh, this one single oxygen atom difference can cause inflammation and cancer. That's University of California at San Diego researcher Ajith Virkji describing some of his groundbreaking research about red meat and sialic acid. Virkji has a lot more to explain and a number of subtleties to what he's looking at with red meat consumption. He provides some of these more detailed points in an extended interview with Shelley Schlender. You can hear that longer interview on our website, howonearthradio.org. Your turn to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. It's almost time for New Year's resolutions about how to have a healthier year. For health, some scientists might recommend cutting back on red meat, as we saw in the previous report about mouse studies of red meat. For other scientists, meat is not the problem. It's too much grain and sugar and dairy products. That's the opinion of Lauren Cordain, a recently retired professor from Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Lauren is the founder of the Paleo Diet Movement. He and his colleagues have done extensive research on humans. And for health and athletic performance, Lauren recommends avoiding modern foods. Instead, he says, eat like our paleo ancestors, fruits and vegetables and fats and meat. We spoke recently at his home about why he doesn't recommend gluten grains or any grain. And he's not a fan of beans. Here's Lauren Cordain. One of the criticisms of the paleo diet by most standard trained nutritionists is that it's a dangerous diet because it eliminates two entire food groups and it will be deficient in numerous trace nutrients, vitamins and minerals. Lauren Cordain, when I was a kid in school, I know something about these food groups. There was milk on one side, there was bread on the other, and I forget what the other two were, but there were four basic food groups and those were two of them. Those food groups are arbitrary categories created by humans, not by evolution through natural selection. Do you think a deer, when it goes out and eats, and it eats a little bit of grass or a little bit of shrubs or herbs, and it's saying, ah, i got to get my food groups in? No, it's absurd. Chimpanzees, primates, they don't worry about food groups. They worry about foods that they're genetically adapted to, that their tastes and their physiologies uh, work well with. So it's an arbitrary classification is that we have grains and dairy products. But Lauren Cordain, bread is the staff of life. I remembered that from school. <laughs> Shelley, that, you know, I mean, you're, you're parroting what I'm going to be saying because I, I've written a paper that has been well cited over the world called Cereal Grains, Humanity's Double-Edged Sword. And any of our listeners can actually download that for free at my website, thepaleodiet.com. So that paper shows that from an evolutionary perspective, a nutritional perspective, a biochemical perspective, and a genetic perspective, humans don't have any cereal grain requirement. We can get along just fine. We don't have to eat cereal grains. We don't have to eat cereal grains, and your paper is a great way to study that. And I remember the first time I read that paper, 
I read it three times because it's pretty dense. It's got a lot of information in it, and it takes a while for the concepts to sink in. It's not like a soundbite story. It is a rigorous thing to read that paper, but it can be life-changing. It was a labor of love to write, and I'd been working on it for almost two years before I had an invitation from Artemis Simopoulos, who was the editor of a well-known nutrition journal. And she actually invited me to finish the paper up. And I said, Artemis, this is an enormous paper. It runs probably 50 or 60 pages, and that's in the print version. And I said, over 400 references. And she said, let's do it. I said, I'm only about half done. And so she actually gave me the opportunity to do that. I was in Athens, Greece at a conference that she had invited me to. And so I came home and dropped everything, and I finished that paper in six months that I'd been working on for two years. She ended up publishing it, got published in 1999. And you know, some things have changed, but a lot of what's in that paper still holds true. Some of the ideas we had about autoimmune disease and serograins, we now have more modern and better data. It doesn't sound like you've disagreed with what you said initially, but now you have more focus in what you say is the link between autoimmune diseases and grain, for instance. We actually have more support. And so in 1999, I was dealing upon the best scientific papers that spanned the decade or two decades or three decades before that, whereas a lot of water has gone over the dam since 1999. And we now know that cereal grains are associated with multiple autoimmune diseases. We're getting a much better handle on why that is. Meaning that there's more support, not less support, for the ideas that you started with in that paper about cereal grains. Absolutely. For instance, one of the most powerful arguments that has come forth comes from Alessio Fasano's group at the University of Maryland Celiac Center. They were the individuals that showed that gluten actually upregulates a compound in our gut called zonulin, and zonulin increases intestinal permeability. That sounds like something from a movie, zonulin, the invader from outer space. Actually, the term zonulin, zonulin had been discovered before Fasano's group had made the connection that gluten upregulates zonulin. And so what it shows is in many people, when you eat gluten or gluten-containing grains, it increases intestinal permeability. Let's go backwards in time to 2000. We had written a paper in the British Journal of Nutrition saying that increased intestinal permeability was an underlying factor for autoimmune disease. So we came in almost, I think Fasano's group came in 2006. So so we were about six years earlier than Fasano's group with the experimental evidence. So it, it was very gratifying for me to see that we now have experimental evidence in humans and animals that gluten-containing grains increase intestinal permeability. But what Fasano did is he went on to corroborate the hypothesis that we put forth uh, six, seven years earlier that a fundamental factor underlying autoimmune disease was an increase in intestinal permeability. We now believe, not just we, but Fasano's group and others around the world believe that type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, Hashimoto's disease of the thyroid, rheumatoid arthritis, and other diseases that we believe are autoimmune in nature are preceded by a leaky gut in genetically susceptible individuals. We're talking about food right now. It's also known that there are other environmental factors that will increase intestinal permeability, such as 
use of antibiotics, which has been so prevalent in the last 50 years, and the increased use of pesticides of different kind, the decrease in exercise may have some link to whether or not the gut holds itself together with integrity. While we're talking about food, it's in a world where these other factors are also influencing what's going on. Well, that's a good point, Shelley. And I think that if that fundamental hypothesis in theory is correct, which I believe it is, that the largest interface between our body and the outside world is our gut, then when the gut becomes permeable to the gut contents and to bacteria, that's not a good thing for our immune system. So there's a lot of good evidence to point to the idea that multiple factors in our environment can increase intestinal permeability. However, it's kind of like cigarette smoking was in the 50s. Everybody did it. And it wasn't until the Surgeon General's report in the 1960s that we realized that everybody's doing it and a certain percentage of people pay the consequence. Everybody eats wheat. But when I say everybody, now that paleo is becoming so known worldwide, not so many people eat wheat anymore. And with gluten sensitivity, an estimated 5% of the U.S. population, which amounts to 15 million people, have gluten sensitivity. So many, many people are stopping and getting gluten out of the diet. If we talk about environmental factors that increase intestinal permeability, one factor that is poorly appreciated, and I had a email conversation with Alessio Fasano a number of years ago. And I said, you know, you guys are focused on wheat and gluten containing grains. I said, have you considered saponins? And he goes, what? Saponins. And I said, yes, saponins do the same thing, but through a different mechanism. Saponins, those are in quinoa. Saponins are in all kinds of foods that we eat as staple foods. For instance, kidney beans, snap beans, Saponins are high in many, many foods. One thing that you're pointing out here is that while the world has a real fascination with gluten, and there's a lot of documentation about gluten being a hazard for some people, you can go to grocery stores and find gluten-free foods. I've never been to a store that sells saponin-free foods in an aisle that says saponin-free. There's a lot of compounds in grains and in beans that are designed not to help us eat them. Right. These are called anti-nutrients. Anti-nutrients are compounds that are evolutionarily selected for. Sometimes they're called secondary compounds. And they're selected for by the plant to prevent or discourage predation. And so one of the factors that you have to do is that if you're going to discourage predation and you want to poison a predator, the toxic compounds that you evolve have to get into the predator's bloodstream. What that means is that when you ingest them, they have to get past the intestinal barrier, the GI tract barrier, and then get into plasma and ultimately into bloodstream. So when you boil kidney beans, when you pressure cook kidney beans, you can get the lectins out of them. You can do a pretty good job of removing lectins, but you can't get saponins out even with pressure cooking. Saponins are concentration gradient driven in terms of what they do to biological membranes, meaning that the more of them you get, the more they bust open membranes. And you mean cell membranes, meaning the protective coating on our cells in our body. That's right. First off, in the gut, we have a mucus lining. Below that, we have a glycocalyx. And below that, we have endothelial cells that line the gut. 
And so for saponins to get into the body and do their nasty things, they have to break down mucus, which they can do very easily. That's soap. You want to get mucus off your body, put soap on the mucus and it goes away. You want a glycocalyx to go away, put soap on it. You want to break open a membrane, put soap on it. This is how molecular biochemists break open cells to put compounds into the cell to see what happens is with saponins. The way that saponins break down cell membranes is that they bind the cholesterol moiety. They bind the cholesterol molecule on the membrane and they cause the membrane then to what we call exvaginate. It forms this bubble and then more and more of the saponins bind more and more of the cholesterol molecules and they cause the membrane then to break and they punch a hole in the membrane. As I mentioned, it's concentration gradient driven. So the more you eat, the more this happens. These anti-nutrients that plants evolved protect them against insects, protects them against viruses, fungi, and bacteria. So a lot of them have multiple functions and they protect against small mammals, birds, and they even protect against large mammals. Even even cows sometimes will not digest some of these grains and beans because they have so many anti-nutrients. These grains and beans make it through the digestive tract of even those animals. Yeah, you're absolutely right. One bottom line, though, is when someone sees that the bread is supposed to be the staff of life, and they're in the grocery store and they say, I've got some low-grade inflammation, something's wrong, so I'm going to go to the gluten-free aisle. There's a lot of other anti-nutrients besides gluten that you can't track through lab tests that you can get as a consumer, and you can't track by going and finding the saponin-free aisle. You know, you can't do that. So what's the better course for somebody who might have low-grade inflammation when it comes to grains and beans? I would say uh, tightly follow the paleo diet and don't eat grains and beans. Lauren Cordain is a Colorado State University scientist and the founder of the Paleo Diet Movement. For a fee, you can subscribe to Lauren's latest podcast at his website. His older podcasts are available for free, along with many research papers and talks and columns. Find out more at thepaleodiet.com. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and Kenda Kruger. I produced today's show and was the engineer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hot Chip versus William Onyebok. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender.